Hello, and thank you for watching another episode of Take 15. I'm Rob Gowan, Director of Member Products at CFA Institute, and joining me today is Ian Bremer. Ian is the founder and president of Eurasia Group, and he's also a very prolific writer, uh, with his most recent book being The End of the Free Market. So, Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be with you, Rob. So, we're at the CFA Institute Annual Conference here in Boston, and I've heard several speakers tout the future of investing in the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And somebody went so far as to say, the question is, isn't whether should you invest in the BRIC nations, it's uh, why you shouldn't invest in the BRIC nations. And so I just didn't know if you had some comments uh, that could help shed some light on that from your perspective. Well, it's clear that they are uh, taken off like a shot um, in the context of a developed world that is anemic at best right now. So I, I, that, that I assume that that underlies uh, much of that commentary. But let's recognize that these are very different economies. Um, emerging markets in general are more opaque. They have less contract sanctity, less rule of law. They're more subject to things like nationalizations and so forth. That's generally true. Now, we're feeling increasingly comfortable as countries like Brazil and India industrialize um, that uh, a lot of those risks are starting to go away and there's looking to be less downside. But when you talk about authoritarian governments like Russia and China, the potential downside is significant, particularly as you start looking out over the longer term. In Russia, you have state power in the hands of one individual, uh, Mr. Putin, the prime minister, um, and that means that there's massive policy volatility that you're subject to. Um, if they face a downturn, if uh, a particular equity gets on the wrong side of uh, the leadership, uh, you don't have those sorts of problems, those sorts of degrees of problems um, in developed states. In China, um, in addition to not having rule of law, you're also facing a, a global environment that's increasingly combative um, and uh, in some ways incompatible with the Chinese growth model. Uh, longer term, the sustainability of Chinese growth, given those structural concerns, uh, as well as uh, given some of the big problems coming down the pike on the environment, on labor, demographics, and on the brittleness of an authoritarian regime, if there's a sudden downturn, creates more volatility. Um, I feel much more comfortable that China is going to do very, very well economically in the near to medium term. The real question for investors is how do you benefit from that growth, because it's not obvious that all investors will. Well, that actually leads right into my next question, is uh, earlier in your um, talk, which was fascinating, by the way, you. Um, you had mentioned that multinational corporations are really going to have to adjust their business models if they want to be successful in state-run economies. And the example being Google, a very scalable business model, um, but clearly wasn't very successful in China. So do you have any thoughts about the attributes that businesses need to show in order to be successful? Well, the most important attribute they need um, is they need to be actually indispensable in some way um, to the state. Um, and there are lots of different ways to be indispensable. One, and, and, and it can't just be for tomorrow. I mean, if you've got a great technology and you give it to them and then it's gone, 
you used to be indispensable, maybe you made some nice coin for a few years, but then you're not. So you have to have a model that if it's a technology advantage, you have to be able to maintain that technology advantage. One way is that it's very fast moving. I mean, if you look at folks like uh, the iPod, right, and by the time you've developed it, you know, sort of it's almost obsolete, something else is coming on, you're constantly paying catch-up. So the, 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 the quick time horizon does actually help you there. Um, there are also just certain sectors, uh, if you think about the relative entrepreneurship, um, of uh, many multinationals and areas that, uh, for example, the Chinese just haven't done well at, um, that uh, you know are going to lend themselves um, to much better chances for Western investment. Um, if you think about advertising, for example, just not an area that the Chinese government has done a great job at building up themselves. The private sector is very, very weak there, but it's absolutely necessary to the build out of consumption and brand awareness, especially in the interior of the country. Western firms in advertising will do very well. Now, we're talking about China, which is a state capitalist system, but it's also the most competitive across the board of the state capital systems. We should not in any way imply that the same challenges are true of investing in other state capitalist countries. If you look at the Persian Gulf, um, you know, they've got a, a very robust oil sector and in many countries a robust petrochem sector, uh, but they want to diversify. Unlike China, they do not have well-educated labor. Uh, they have to import much of their labor, and their educational system domestically is not very good. They also have extremely immature development in different sectors. So even though the systems may be incompatible, the power asymmetries are so great that there will still be many, many opportunities for Western firms to invest and do well, with the understanding that if for some reason you fall foul of a leader or a member of the family, even though they need you, you've got a problem. Just we have, whenever we talk about emerging markets and particularly authoritarian regimes, that's important. And the one point I just really would emphasize here is we always talk about emerging markets. And we need to recognize that you know, some emerging markets have rule of law and some don't. Some emerging markets have transparency and contract sanctity. Some don't. And increasingly, we should start breaking those different types of emerging markets out because you have very different sorts of risk that actually ascribe to those countries. Well, let's shift from emerging to potentially the opposite of that. And uh, I'd like to ask you a quick question about Greece. Which is the world's newest emerging market. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except going in the wrong direction. Yes, submerging, but still. Submerging. Yeah. Um, you, you had written a book called The Fat Tale, and I just wanted to get your perspective on whether or not uh, what is happening in Greece and the EU in general right now can be construed as a fat tail event, or is this structure of the EU such that um, uh, careful analytics would have put that much more closer to a, a mean outcome? Well, I think you often find that frequently things that you think are fat tails are not fat tails. 9-11 uh, was a fat tail, no question. Um, but you know the financial crisis itself, if you had done a careful study of the mortgage market and the setup of the CDOs of CDOs and uh, the, the money that was going into that, would have told you that a financial crisis was not a fat tail event. We just weren't actually paying attention to the right variables, right? And so in the same regard, uh, the unsustainability of the fiscal environment for a host of southern Mediterranean states, it's not a fat tail. It's just it didn't happen to be what we're focused on. But unfortunately, from the investor perspective, a true fat tail 
and something that isn't a fat tail when you don't actually pay attention to it tends to have the same outcome. So in, in your uh, discussion earlier today, you had mentioned that we've seen more change in the uh, geopolitical environment in the past 18 months yeah. than we have in any other time point in history. Um, since World War II. Since World War II. Yeah, any other similar period of time since World War II, no question. The, the question I have is, is that you know, you've heard the phrase, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Yeah. I mean, is there any point in history that we can look back to to give us any guidance about what happened over the last 18 months and potentially you know, how we can learn uh, some lessons for the future? Well, look, there is a similarity in the sense that whenever you have a massive economic dislocation, it creates a lot of political instability. And so in that regard, looking at big recessions in the past, looking at the Asian crisis in the past, from a regional perspective, looking at the Great Depression, gives you some utility. Um, but, you know, things are so much faster now. Globalization has, you know, made international markets much more interconnected. Um, sentiment, market sentiment can, you know, sort of completely wind or unwind markets very, very quickly, even if the underlying fundamentals were sound before suddenly everyone made a run on it. And that's new. So we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize that the interconnectedness, the economic interconnectedness of these two different systems is not something that we've had to deal with before. We've had a Cold War, uh, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, economically, the U.S. didn't care. In fact, it was on balance a positive. I mean, Germany got to reunify and Europe got together. I mean, basically, just sped everything up. The, chi the United States, it's a disaster if China falls apart. It's the right policy for the U.S. in the Cold War was undermine the Soviets, right? Get these other countries to become more democratic. Support them. And Marshall Plan, strengthen your guys, undermine the other guys. Uh, you don't want China to fall apart because that's a disaster for the U.S. The economies are interlinked. And so here you have a situation um, where one country thinks that it can no longer rely as much on the other and is trying to decouple. But the first country requires coupling for long-term stability. These are now the world's two largest economies. We, we've never experienced that before. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your thoughts. We really appreciate you stopping by. And thank you for watching. And for more uh, podcasts like this, please uh, visit uh, cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2010, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.